All right, I, th I think it's that time, right? I always feel bad interrupting everyone visiting, but I'm looking up the clock and I think it's time to start. Uh, if you have the handouts, I think we're on page 71. If my pencil mark is correct, we stopped right before number three there. So we were getting ready to talk about chapter 18, verse 15. Does that sound right? Rescuing a sinning brother. All right, well, if that's the spot, we'll start here with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful for uh, your grace today and allowing us to do things, allowing us to have provision. We're grateful for the, the change in seasons, the reminder that you are in control, and that we do not live in a random world. We're thankful for your kindness to this church, for gathering these people and providing this opportunity tonight to study together. I pray that you'd help us to think clearly about what your son says to us here in the Gospel of Matthew, and I pray that your spirit would use it to make us more like him. And we ask for this in Christ's name, amen. All right, so if you remember, we're right, right in the middle of chapter 18 of Matthew, which is the fourth of the five major discourses. So we've gotten 80% of the way through the, the discourse section, all right? So there's just one more to go when we get to chapters 24 and 25. If you think about the discourses, all of them, if you want to think broadly about their topic, what are they about? In a nutshell, they're all about the kingdom of God, some aspect of the kingdom of heaven, the, heaven, the heavenly kingdom that's going to come to earth someday at Jesus' second coming. So they're answering questions like, who enters? Uh, when will it come? What are, what are we supposed to be doing in the meantime? And specifically in chapter 18, it's talking about those of us who are already citizens of that kingdom, this new community that Jesus has built, uh, how are we supposed to interact with each other? And when we left off, we had just talked about the short little parable that Jesus tells about the the sheep, remember the, the sheep there, the lost sheep represents a, a strain believer who's in danger of just wandering away from the faith. And when we see he or her headed that direction, we as fellow sheep should go after them. We should try to rescue them. So I think in this next paragraph, verses 15 through 20, Jesus instructs how to go about restoring the lost sheep introduced in the previous parable. It was at least implied in that parable that we as believers would want to rescue the wandering sheep, but here that obligation is made more explicit, and we're also given some instructions on how we would go about actually doing that. So, you know, to put it another way, I think this little section here, verses 15 through 20, is about church discipline, which I don't think that's controversial. I think that's pretty well recognized, but just remember it fits broadly into this larger discourse of how we should care for each other as one big family. All of us as little ones, all of us as God's sheep, all of us as God's fellow servants. So 
there's going to be times, I say there at the end of that paragraph, and I give you some references, there's going to be times where there's going to be offenses, you know, sin that's committed in our congregation that's so offensive to the name of Christ and his testimony that the person would have to be immediately uh, removed from the congregation. So there, and I give you some references that talk about that later in the New Testament that Paul has to deal with that. So this isn't the only thing that the New Testament says about church discipline, but this is definitely one of the key passages. And in this passage, it assumes that the goal is to restore. All right, so you're probably familiar with the process, but one person goes who's, who has knowledge of the sin. He confronts his brother or sister, verse 15. He points out their fault. If they won't listen to that brother or sister, they're supposed to come back with two or three witnesses in verse 16. There's a big debate there. Are these two or three people who have seen the sin or have knowledge of the sin? So do they witness the sin or are they just witnesses of this confrontation, this, this opportunity to correct? And I, I give you some options there back and forth, some, some evidence. I think Deuteronomy 19.15 might support the option that they're actually witnesses to the sin. But actually Carson, in his commentary, he uses that exact same scripture reference and argues the opposite. So it's not very clear. I do wonder, though, if we always had to get two or three other people who had knowledge of the sin and witnessed it, that might severely limit the types of things we could confront. Because sometimes we might be the only person that knows about this issue in a brother's life. And if we care about them, we'd want to see them restored. So I think it's probably more likely that these are two or three people who could go with you and that together you could help correct this brother and then they would be witnesses of how fair this person was treated and then could report back to the whole congregation. So then he goes to this next section, flipping the page, verses 18 and 19. Another couple difficult verses. So let's just look at the whole paragraph in context. I think sometimes if we just read 18 and 19, so I'm reading it out of the NIV. It says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So if you just took those two verses out of context, and didn't read them with the surrounding context around them, it might just seem like Jesus is saying, hey, if any two Christians get together and they pray about something and they agree on it, then they're right, and, and heaven will confirm their decision. But that's, that's not what he's talking about. He's specifically talking about this issue of, of discipline, of confronting. And you can see this by the parallels, parallelism of the paragraph. So remember at the beginning in verse 16, if, if the man won't listen to you, you're supposed to take one or two others with you. So I think when you get down to the next line, it talks about two or three witnesses. That would be you and one other person would make two, or you and two other persons would make three. So at least take one other person with you. And then at the bottom, when he again refers to two on earth or two or three gathered, you see the parallelism. He's talking about the same thing. And the matter that he refers to the matter is this, this issue that you've brought up with your brother or sister who's sinning. It's not just any old thing that you decide to agree on. 
but it's the church's collective decision about what to do with someone, not just because they've sinned. That's not really the issue. We all sin. The issue is that when their sin was exposed, they've refused to repent. And that, that's what ultimately leads to them being removed from the community, from the church. Their failure to repent when it's been very obvious to the whole church that they truly have sinned, that they were headed down the wrong path. But then what Jesus says, when we make that decision, so when we collectively, those are you plurals, so those are all, it's not just you as an individual, it's you plural. When we make this decision, the decision we've made to bind or loose them is just an affirmation of a decision that's already been made in heaven. So again, this is, these are some tough verses. So just to get us thinking from a different perspective, I deliberately up there on the screen, I gave you a, a reference from a different translation. So this is from the CSB. So those phrases in blue are the relevant ones. The, the choices are, is Jesus saying they will be bound in heaven? and they will be loosed in heaven, or is he saying they will have been? See how that's a little bit different? So I think the will have been actually captures Jesus' meaning better. And this is parallel to what Jesus said back in chapter 16. Remember he used the same metaphor of keys? Keys open and close doors. The door I think he's specifically thinking of is the kingdom. So he's thinking of the people or the constituency who enter the kingdom, God has a plan, right? God has one unalterable sovereign plan. He has people he has decided to save. There's people that Jesus has bought with his own blood. But God has chosen to implement that plan through us. That's our great privilege. So we have the privilege of actually going out and sharing the gospel. And when we share the gospel and someone receives it, it's as if we've opened the door to the kingdom to them. And when we share the gospel and someone rejects us, then we've closed the door to the kingdom. But all the while, it's not really just us. We're just tools. We're just instruments in God's hand. It's really His decision that's ultimate. And the same thing with church discipline. When we ultimately decide, hey, this brother or sister has been confronted with their sin and they refuse to repent, we have to remove them from the assembly because they're showing themselves to not truly be one of us. When we collectively make that decision, Jesus is saying that that's a decision that affirms a prior decision that God has already made in heaven. So that, that's, a, that's a tough little passage. It's, it's relatively familiar to us because in most of our congregations, we hear it taught regularly because both church membership and church discipline is a very important aspect of having a healthy church. Uh, but I think if you took the pieces of that paragraph by themselves, it might lead you to some wrong conclusions. Sometimes it's helpful to read it in its context and think carefully about what Jesus is doing. So the very last sentence there of point C, I say in verse 18, the focus is on the church's role being carried out through maintaining a regenerated membership. And this isn't unloving. There's nothing unloving about calling somebody to repentance and then removing them if they fail to repent, right? Because there's no benefit, there's nothing kind done to a person if you just leave them as part of the group and let them feel like they're okay and they're on the right, the right path, and then them to finally stand before the final judgment someday, and like those people in Matthew 7, 
to have Jesus say, depart from me, I never knew you. It'd be much more kind if we tried to shake them up and awaken them to their need of repentance now before it's too late. All right, so then in this context of, of forgiving and restoration, Peter's going to ask this little question in verse 21. I'll go ahead and read it, and then we'll talk about it. Verse 21 says, Then Peter came to Jesus, and he asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? So Peter gets the point of the teaching. He realizes that Jesus isn't just after getting as many people as he can out of the church. The, the whole point of this teaching was to see people restored, to see people forgiven. And Peter gets that. So then he's wondering, well, I wonder how often I should forgive someone if they keep doing the same thing. And we have some evidence, I say there in point A, that the rabbis, at least later, and it probably goes back to Jesus' day, were teaching that you could forgive someone three times. Three times is the limit. <laughs> After three times, they're cut off. And so Peter's thinking, I'm being generous by saying seven, and seven's the perfect number, so to speak, in the Bible. So he's probably thinking, I'm going to... I'm going to up the ante, and I'm going to say seven, and I'll probably get a gold star from Jesus for having the right answer. But what does Jesus say to him, right? It's actually, it's either 70 times seven, or it's 77. Are you familiar with that debate? So in some of our translations, it's 70 times seven. Sometimes it's 77. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a debate that can just be argued by texts or translations. It's, there's some legitimate options that are, that are difficult. But I think if you're wondering, I think 77 is probably the best, and that's why it shows up in most of our modern translations, because I think Jesus is being a little ironic. He's giving an ironic, ironic twist to an old passage. So in Genesis chapter 4, you remember Lamech, he, he, he boasts about how many people he's killed. He said, if Cain is avenged seven times, than Lamech 77 times. And everyone agrees that there it's 77. It's not 70 times 7. So I think this is where Jesus came up with that number. Now, Jesus doesn't mean that at 77 we stop. You know, if they come back at 78, that's it. You know, you're cut off. That, that's not the point of Jesus' teaching. He's basically just saying you keep forgiving them. As long as they truly look repentant, as long as you have a a good reason to think that this is a genuine request for forgiveness, then you keep forgiving them. Because after all, you've been forgiven a lot. And that's the point of this next parable that he tells, right? The, the unmerciful servant, all right? Uh, he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, in verse 23, is like a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. And he began this, as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him, okay? So sometimes when we read these parables, it's helpful to use our imagination a little bit. You know, put ourselves in the, the original hearer's perspective. So a talent is, is a lot of money. This is, a, this is a measurement of weight, okay? Like our number, like our ton or pounds. This is, it's not coins, it's like measuring money by how much it weighs. It's a lot of money, and the number that he uses there that we translate 10,000, it's just one word, and it's the biggest number that they have. In, in their culture, they didn't have many reasons to count past 10,000. So they don't have a number equivalent to millions or billions or trillions. It's just 10,000. That's their big number. 
So when Jesus says 10,000 talents, not only is that the biggest number that he could have used, but if you understand what a talent was, it's almost a laughable number. So I give you some math there. Someone's figured this out, that this would be roughly how much an average worker, average laborer, would make in 193,000 years. Sometimes when we have these money numbers in our Bibles, we'll have a footnote and they'll try to turn them into dollars and cents. The problem with that is inflation, right? As soon as the Bible is printed, it pretty much needs to be updated. So instead of thinking in dollars and cents, it's usually better to think of as earning potential because that's you know, immune for the most part to inflation. So right now, I don't know, what would a common laborer make? You're thinking maybe around $200 a day, something like that. That's gonna become important in the rest of the story. So think $200 a day for 193,000 years. The, the people listening to this would have laughed. This man owes a debt that he's never gonna be able to pay. This is like Scrooge McDuck type of money. This is like fairy tale stuff, like Alibaba, right? Just, just hordes of money that you can't possibly ever imagine. And that's what this, mo and you know, they're probably thinking, you know, he, he'll never pay that off, right? And the point of the story then is that he's forgiven. His, his master decides to forgive him this huge astronomical sum something that you could have translated as zillions of, of bags of gold, but the NIV chose 10,000 bags of gold. But then he goes out, he finds another servant who owes him 100 silver coins. So that's the, that's the denarii, that's the Roman coin. You would get one coin for a day's work. So this is 100 days wages. That's pretty easy math, one coin for one day's wage. So in dollars, that's what, you know, if, you, if we go with $200 just to make it easy, that's $20,000. I don't know about you, if somebody owed me $20,000, I would probably want it back. But what is that compared to 193,000 years worth of earnings, right? It's small. So Jesus' point is you, you could have a legitimate beef with somebody. They could truly have wronged you. It could be painful, right? And you could truly want restitution. But what is that compared to what you've been forgiven? It's your debt that was so great, so infinite, that was just forgiven of God's grace that makes anything that other people do to you, no matter how on a horizontal plane it might feel painful, on a vertical relationship between you and God, it becomes much, much smaller. So we have some evidence here, I think, and this may be this little piece of historical background will make this a little bit more meaningful, going back to page 73, that, you know, this comes up a couple times in Jesus' teaching. He'll talk about debtors being carted off to prisons. Once a man got to debtor's prison, he can't make any money, right? Uh, basically, what we think happened is that they tried to treat them so poorly that friends and family on the outside would do something to ante up the debt. In some cases, actually torture him. So in, in Luke, this becomes a little bit more clear in one of the passages that Jesus teaches on. So once you get to the debtor's prison, you're stuck. That's the kind of plight that this man was saved from. Like he's never going to be able to pay off 193,000 years of work. He would have been stuck in the debtor's prison. So he should be willing to forgive his fellow servant. And remember in the, the discourse, the fellow servants represent all of us, right? Our fellow church members, the fellow people in our community.
Okay? So then we get to, uh, to chapter 19. So we're going to start a new section here. This is at the end of the, the discourse. And it's going to go all the way till the next discourse in chapter 24. So that's, that's probably a good stop place to stop just for a second and see if there's questions. Any questions there? At least it's a good chance for me to drink some coffee for a second. All right. I think the next paragraph is it's tough to, to not really to understand what Jesus is saying, but to answer the question, why does Matthew put it here? Remember, we've tried to ask both of those two questions as we go through. Why does Matthew have this story, and why does Matthew have this story here? And if you've been reading through the Gospel of Matthew recently, this one about divorce, it just kind of pops out of nowhere. Why, do, why does Matthew at this point decide that he's going to have this confrontation where the Pharisees come to Jesus in verses 3 through 12, and ask him about divorce. I mean, there's, there's one reason, perhaps, I, I say there, the account serves to illustrate the opposition faced by the king from the religious leaders, but also serves as an opportunity for Jesus to provide further instruction to his disciples. So that's, that's my first stab at it. But I think maybe as we go through, we can think of a, a deeper reason that ties it back to the preceding teaching. So we have to know a little bit about the background. The Pharisees come and they ask Jesus in verse 3 of chapter 19. So I'll read that. It says, some Pharisees came to him to test him. So right off the bat, we see this isn't a well-intentioned question, right? They're not asked, actually wanting an answer. They're wanting to trap him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? The reason why we think they're trapping him, why Matthew uses that word, is because we have really good evidence that they had two competing views on the legitimate grounds for divorce in the first century. There were two, two teachers uh, who had both recently passed away, so they're, they're basically contemporaries with Herod the Great, so think late first century BC into early first century AD, one of them named Hillel and one of them named Shammai. Hillel, he went to the, the relevant Old Testament passage in the law about divorce, Deuteronomy 24.1, where it talks about a man can put away his wife or divorce his wife for some kind of indecency or maybe it's sexual immorality. The, the word is vague, and so because of that, there was, some, there was some controversy. What is this indecent thing that a wife could do that would be good grounds then are legitimate grounds for a man to divorce her. He, he took it to mean just, just anything. I mean, we have some later rabbis discussing, and it's, it's basically if you didn't like what she cooked, if you didn't like her appearance, if you just found her in some way unappealing, you could basically divorce her. So he takes a very loose fill, Hillel does. You could divorce your wife for any reason. Shammai, he's a, a strict Pharisee, again, who had recently died. He taught that the, that verse and the law only applied to marital infidelity. So if she had been unfaithful in marriage, that was the original grounds. So they're asking Jesus to take a side. You see what they're doing there? Because they know whichever way he answers, they're going to be a group of them, then they're going to be mad, they're going to be upset with him. 
Jesus is wise, though, right? That's an understatement. He's as wise as Solomon. He's wiser than Solomon, right? There's, there's been books and articles written on the, the connections between Jesus and Solomon. I haven't talked that much about it because I think one of the bigger themes is Jesus and Moses and Jesus and David. But there's also glimpses where we see that Jesus is also greater than Solomon. And he, he's able to navigate this because he doesn't immediately take a side. Instead, he goes back to the original ground rules. I, I borrowed that from Dr. Snowberger, who some of you know he's taught here. He talks about the original ground rules in Genesis, the things that we were given back in the first chapters. And one of those ground rules is that marriage was always intended to be permanent. So if you're, if you're starting out the conversation looking for the reason you can get out of it, you're already on the wrong foot, all right? They're supposed to be preserved when possible, when possible preserved. So then the Pharisees, they ask in verse 7, well, then you're contradicting Moses, Jesus, because Moses commanded divorce. He said if your wife did this indecent thing that you were supposed to divorce her. And if you look at verse 8, Jesus corrects them. Moses didn't command divorce. He didn't require divorce. He just permitted divorce. Jesus' answer seems to be that divorce is only permitted in the case of adultery. At least that's the only exception allowed for by Deuteronomy 24.1. This isn't all the Bible says about divorce. Divorce is a, a broad topic. There's lots of passages we could go to, lots of things that we could talk about. But in this specific passage, what Jesus is driving at, I think, is their inability or their disposition against forgiveness, right? They're, they're approaching this whole issue without any sense of restoration, any kind of desire to see another person who's wronged them forgiven. They're just thinking, okay, what would be the thing that she could do that would legitimately allow me to get out of this marriage? And starting out in that kind of perspective is wrong from the get-go. So when the disciples hear Jesus' response, in verse 10, they take him to be saying something pretty strict, okay? So whatever you understand Jesus to be saying there, the disciples take it to be, this is a pretty strong view of marriage, right? Marriages that should be preserved. So then they say, well, maybe it would just be better if we don't get married, right? So however, Jesus disagrees with their conclusion that it's better not to marry, verse 11. He says there's some people who are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. In other words, there's some men or women, that God has given them the ability to stay single because I think that'll give them more opportunities, more focus on kingdom work, which I would say for the sake of the kingdom is just another way of referring to gathering the constituency, sharing the gospel, making disciples, working with your gifts in the local church. We just realize that. Those of us that are married, that's a responsibility, right? There's a responsibility that comes with marriage. But Paul is the classic example in the New Testament, right? Of someone who, as far as we know, lived a life of singleness because it allowed him to live, a, you know, to be frank, a much more dangerous life, right? He probably wouldn't have been running around the Mediterranean world doing all of the things that he did if he'd had wife and a child to worry about, right? So that was, that was the, the eunuch for the sake of the kingdom, I think, here that Jesus is referring to in verse 12, all right? So I'm going to wrap this up, this little section up, by uh, 
point you to some of Turner's words, okay? So again, this is trying to think about how does this little teaching on divorce, how does it fit into the broader context? So Turner, who seeks to read this story in Jesus' life in light of the immediately preceding material regarding forgiveness, has wise words. So here I'm quoting from him. He says, Moses did not command divorce, and certainly neither did Jesus. Even in the case of marital infidelity, divorce should not be the first option. It's not, it's not just something you have to automatically do. The deep wounds caused by marital infidelity can be healed by the love of God in Christ. Couples contemplating divorce must contemplate the implications of, and that's the references to the parable of the unforgiving servant, and what Jesus says here in verse 8. When one is sinned against, Forgiveness is the primary Christian duty. Forgiveness can, so I'm emphasizing the word can, it can lead to restored relationships and is a powerful testimony to the power of Jesus' gospel. So then these are my words. Sometimes Christians, often through no fault of their own, find themselves in situations where marriages cannot be preserved, but where possible they should strive to forgive and restore. So sometimes they'll do everything right, and it's outside their control. That happens, right? You, you can forgive, you can seek to restore, and the other person, the other spouse is just unwilling, right? All we're required to do is take care of our own responsibilities, our own heart attitudes. But we should strive to, right? So again, thinking about the Pharisees, I think this is another poignant picture into their heart, right? Jesus has just said, people who enter into the kingdom are like people who had this zillion-dollar debt forgiven, and so they should forgive others. But the Pharisees, who genuinely believe they will enter the kingdom because they're good men, they show up and they're asking, on what grounds could we legitimately get out of a marriage, right? It's just a misguided question. It's a misguided question based on Scripture. That's the irony of it. They know the Old Testament well, they're having this theological debate, but they don't have a heart within them that's willing to forgive. All right, any, any questions there on that, on that little paragraph? Yes, ma'am. Um, I know that the Jews, at least the, the strict ones, do not allow the women to um, enter the Tamar, yeah. Tamar. It didn't seem like anything happened. Mm -hmm. She was going to be the one that was going to be humiliated and burned or sent to her father or something. Yeah. Was yeah. Just out of luck? Uh, so the question is what happens to the men in those situations? If, if the man is the, the adulterer and the mm -hmm. woman is innocent. Yeah. Well, I think if, if they're Christians, so in, in this context, we're, we're talking about how Christians should relate to each other, then I think you should, if the other person is genuinely repentant, I think you should move towards restoration. And there's a lot of other issues. There's safety issues. Um, there's health issues. A lot of things could come into play that you'd, you'd need pastoral counsel for. But Jesus' overriding principle here that I think we should always go back to 
is that we were forgiven a great debt, and so we should be willing to forgive others. Um, as far as practically in the first century, probably women weren't seeking divorce just because of their financial situation. Uh, if they left their, their husband's house, uh, they didn't have Social Security like we do. They didn't have employment opportunities. So unless another man or their father was willing to take them in, you know, they could end up in poverty. And so it was probably more the men who were flippantly thinking of ways to get rid of their wives than the other way around. It probably wasn't a real big problem, especially in Jewish women, of them trying to get rid of their husbands. Does that, does that kind of answer your question? Yeah. All right. So chapter 19, verse 13, we'll pick up here with the story of Jesus blessing the little children. So this is all on the way to the cross, too. Let's stop and think about that. So now in this last section, starts in 19.3, is going to go basically up until the, the triumphal entry and then into the, the Olivet Discourse. This is now Jesus for the first time in Matthew going towards Jerusalem. So remember in John's Gospel, he goes back and forth. He, he shows up for various feasts. But in Matthew, he's just chosen to only pretty much tell the stories that happen in, in Galilee and then in some of the surrounding Gentile territory. But now this is Jesus' first trip to Jerusalem where three times he's predicted now that he will die after being mistreated and then on the third day rise. So I think here, as we move towards the, the climax of the story, uh, the, the theme of grace gets emphasized even more. Our need, like children, to receive a, a gift from God that we would never be able to pay for and just humbly embrace Christ as our sufficient Savior. It, Matthew does that in several little instances right here in a row. The first one is just the story of the children who come up and want the blessing. So I think here, and I say in the middle of that paragraph, I think the emphasis seems to lie instead of on humility like it does the first time he uses children. Here it's more on childlike trust or absolute dependence on another that's required to enter the kingdom. Excuse me. So we've seen this picture here before. This is kind of my attempt to think of how the kingdom is viewed in the Gospels. So sometimes when we talk about the kingdom, we're talking about the king, the ruler. So the kingdom is in your midst. I think he's specifically talking about himself and his, his miracles. Sometimes we're talking about the place. The kingdom is something that you enter. It has a gate. It has keys. It's a home, right? It's Eden restored like we like to sing. It's what we're longing for, why we feel like strangers and pilgrims here, right? Because even though we're already the people, that's the third part, we're already the people of the kingdom, we know that we're living here as aliens and strangers, as 1 Peter puts it, right? All three of those together. I think here when he, he talks about, uh, in verse 14, he says, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So see, look, it's in the present tense. So there's, there's people who are like these little children. He's not saying it belongs to little children. But people who are like little children, and I think the character trait that he's thinking of, people who are dependent, who are trusting, who just come and take something from their parent, and they never ask, how much can I pay you for this, right? They just take it because they have nothing to offer in exchange. 
people like that, it says, already belong to the kingdom. So in what sense do we already belong to something? I think he's thinking of our, of our citizenship or the fact that as a community, we're already the constituency of the kingdom. So the, the kingdom, in a sense, is future. It's, it's going to be here when Jesus returns. It's a place. It's going to be something we can touch and feel and see. But right now, we already belong to it. We're already citizens of it. But you only belong to it. You're only a citizen of it if, like a child, you've embraced Christ. and You're trusting in Him and the grace that He offers, right? Completely different than what the Pharisees of Jesus' day thought of when they thought of themselves as being part of the kingdom. And I think this is contrasted then by the next story, because then you have a man who shows up in verse 16. It says, just then. So you notice that in verse 16? You know, Matthew doesn't always emphasize any kind of chronological order. Sometimes things just seem to be topically arranged, but he wants to make clear that just then, as Jesus has been talking about this this dependency of this child, this man shows up and he asks, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? So in these passages, I say they're point one, eternal life, kingdom of heaven, and kingdom of God, they're used interchangeably for the same reality. So when he asks, what can I do to get eternal life? That's just another way of saying, what can I do to enter into the the messianic kingdom, into the kingdom of heaven? And I say that because I think he's thinking of a passage like this in the Old Testament. So this is at the very end of Daniel. Uh, Remember the the angel who's been communicating this message to Daniel, perhaps the, the second person of the Trinity. He's telling Daniel, you know, you can't be overly concerned about what you see. You just need to trust that someday in the future it'll take place long after you've died, but there's going to be a resurrection. He says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. But when you wake from this resurrection, you're going to go two different places. Some people at the resurrection will go to everlasting life. There's the key word. And some people will go to shame and everlasting contempt. All right. So when Jesus in Matthew 13, when he talked about a uh, a sorting out or a final harvest where some people will go one direction and some people go another, that wasn't a completely new concept. That was something that was already taught in the Old Testament. That when we go into the kingdom of the Messiah, it's a kingdom that lasts forever. And it's on the other side of the resurrection. So when we go into it, it is, as Daniel said, everlasting life. And this man, he genuinely wants to know, well, what can I do? And we're familiar with the story, right? First, Jesus points him to the commandments, and he proudly says, I kept them. I've been keeping them my whole life. But Jesus then goes to the the heart of the problem, no pun intended, right? He goes to his affections, what this man cares about. He says, well, then, if you really want everlasting life, sell your possessions and come follow me, right? You know, there are many of us, I think all of us as Christians, I'm guessing at some point in our life, we struggle with assurance of salvation, doubts, right? Am I really a child of God? It's a, it's a common experience of all of us, right? Because of the world that we live in and because of our own weaknesses. But you, when you think about assurance of salvation, what could be stronger than Jesus looking at you face to face and saying, if you do X, then you're in. It's guaranteed you will enter eternal life, right? And the guy looks at him and says, 
no, never mind, right? I'm not going to sell all that I have and come follow you. I don't actually really want eternal life that badly because I actually love, what is it? It's, it's money, right? It's his stuff. I think Jesus just picked stuff, his money, because he knew that that was the thing that that man loved. But it could be anything, right? Any idol in our life that would draw our love away from the Lord our God, who we're supposed to love with our whole being, that would be symptomatic of a sin problem. And and I think Jesus is driving this man to realize that he really can't do anything to inherit eternal life. He needs eternal life given to him like a gift. So he's He's contrasted here with the the child in the previous paragraph. The two are put side by side. Which then, I think, leads us to the the next paragraph, obviously. Verses 27 and following. So we have this little kind of, I kind of skimmed over it, but I had a little interplay where the rich man goes away in verse 22. In verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. This is something I was thinking later I should have added to the notes because sometimes I get questions about the, the camel going through the eye of the needle. I just this week was teaching this in a, in a Bible study setting and a lady immediately brought up the the idea that sometimes you heard in old preaching that there was a wall in Jerusalem that had a little small gate that camels could actually kneel down and scoot through. As far as we know, that's about a hundred years ago that that started showing up in preaching. No, one's, no one knows for sure when that started, but it just started and it caught on and then it just kept getting passed along. But as far as we know, it's not actually something that goes back to the days of Jesus. And if you think about what Jesus is saying here, especially with what he says in verse 26, he's using the camel through the eye of a needle as an example of an impossibility. Right? If a camel could actually go through a little gate, that would be hard, but it wouldn't be impossible. Then Jesus would be saying, well, it's really hard for a man to enter the kingdom of heaven if he's rich, but some of them will scoot through. Right? Some of them will get down on their knees and they'll scoot through. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus is thinking of a needle the same way you and I think of a needle. I've never been able to thread a needle. You know, I've done the little licking thing and everything that you're supposed to do. It just doesn't work, right? Maybe I drink too much coffee. Just can't get that thread through that little hole. Jesus is taking the largest animal they have, a camel. Okay, so they don't they don't know about blue whales. They don't see elephants every day. Camels are their big animals. He's saying, think of the biggest animal that you can think of, and then think about him walking through the little tiny eye of a needle. That's what it would be like for someone like this rich man to enter the kingdom. Well, then the disciples are like, well, then it's impossible, right? Nobody's going to be saved. And then some of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture, right? Verse 26, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible, right? God can change a heart. God could have changed that heart so that that man would have chosen Jesus over his money. And if you and I today are trusting in childlike faith in Christ, it's because God did the impossible, right? He did the work of regeneration. But then all of this talk here about leaving stuff, again, Peter, as he's prone to do, he blurts out and says what probably other people might be thinking. 
He's like, well, I have left stuff, right? I have left things. He says, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? So he's, he's probably thinking, I, you know, I used to be a fisherman. I left my boat, maybe left my family, presumably, left my livelihood. I've been out here walking around with you, traveling for the last few years. After I've done all that, what's in store for me? So then Jesus says here, verses 28 through 30, let me read those. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. That many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. So first of all, Jesus here, I think he says some pretty remarkable things about himself. So um, let me go to point two, and then I'll come back to point one. So this is point two at the top of page 75. Jesus ensures Peter that they will be rewarded in the kingdom for following him. Something to remind ourselves, you know, we, we could go to a job where no one ever appreciates what we do. We can have relationships that we sacrifice for, and that person never appreciates it, you know, never seems to notice. But it's impossible, it's impossible for you and I to serve God and for him to not notice, right? He always notices. He will always reward. Everything that we've genuinely done for him will be rewarded in the kingdom. And here he points to something glorious, like he is the son of man, this is from Daniel chapter 7, who someday will sit on his glorious throne. That could maybe just go right over our head, but I say there in point three, that's a pretty strong connection back to Daniel chapter 7. Remember in Daniel chapter 7, he sees the ancient of days, he sees thrones set up, he sees one like the son of man who comes in the clouds, the one like the Son of Man is given a kingdom, and he defeats the, the beast. But then not only does he have a kingdom, but he shares his kingdom with his people. So I think this is the idea of, of sharing the kingdom with his disciples. But then it's the Most High who has the kingdom. If you get to the end of the passage in Daniel, it's clear that this one who's the Son of Man, who sits on the throne, is also God himself. He's also the Most High. So um, sometimes we wonder, why doesn't Jesus just come right out in the Gospels and say who he is? You know, why doesn't he just say, I'm, I'm the second person of the Trinity. I'm, I'm the Son of God, right? He has his own reasons for why he does things. But there are, all through the Gospels, clear indicators that he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. This isn't just a normal man, right? He's saying here, I'm the one someday who will rule the world from a glorious throne and when I do that, you're going to share, the 12 of you, in my reign. Those who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he talks about how we'll receive compensation or reward for the sacrifices that we've made here in this life. But then, I think this is the punchline, and this will lead right into chapter 20. Because if you notice, look at the end of verse We'll look at verse 30, so chapter 19, verse 30, and then look over at the verse 16 in chapter 20. They're parallel, right? So they serve as bookends. 
So Jesus is going to make this statement here about the first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And then he practically says the same thing again in verse 16. And there's also another connection, and this was point one. You notice that chapter 20, when he starts to give this parable, it has that little word for there. Does everyone see that? Chapter 20, verse 4. So his parable that follows in chapter 20 is his explanation of what he means by the first will be last and the last will be first. I think the point of it here, and we'll try to bear this or support this as we go through, is that it's not about our efforts. It's not about how we finish. You know, if we, if we have a race and we have a podium where someone's going to get a gold and someone's going to get a silver and someone's going to get a bronze, it's all about like where you cross the finish line, right? Who ran the fastest? It's all about your achievements, your effort, and that's going to determine your ranking. But Jesus is saying, ultimately, even though there are rewards in the kingdom, there's one great reward, eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, eternal presence with the Father. He will be your God and you will be his people. But that makes everything else small, almost irrelevant, right? And that one great overwhelming gift will not be determined by in any way based on your performance and what you've done. It's, it's just as if, if there was a race and everyone that came in last came in first and everyone who came in first came in last. The order doesn't matter ultimately. The efforts, the achievements don't matter. What actually matters is that you've been given this great gift. And so he, he tries to illustrate that because that's a, that's a hard concept, right? That's not the way the world operates. That's not the way we usually do things. We're all about achievement, you know being compensated for things that we've actually done. So he gives this story. Well, what if there was a man, he says, and he has a, a vineyard, and they're going to work a 12-hour day. That would be a normal day in the first century from basically sunup to sundown, and he needs labors. So he goes and he gets labors. There's guys just standing around in a common area, and they need work. And he says, I'm going to give you a wage, and it's, it's the denarii again. So the one coin for a one day's work and they agree to it because it's fair. That's the point of the story. They get a fair wage. Okay. In our day, we might say it's, it's 200 bucks. We'll just use that for easy math. They're going to get 200 bucks as unskilled workers to work for one day. And they, they gladly take it because they need money. That's why they're standing there. Well, then a few hours later, he says in verse 3, he says, About 9 in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. So about three hours later, so now if you shave three off of 12, these guys he hires are only going to work for nine hours, right? And then it gets worse. He, he hires some people at noon, and then finally he hires some people about five in the afternoon. So those are all different ways of measuring out the time. Basically, we went from people who worked a 12-hour day, people who work a nine-hour day, people who work a six-hour day, Oh, I forgot one. There's, there's three in the afternoon. So then you got people that worked a three-hour day and finally people who only worked one hour. And they got the easiest hour of the day. They got the coolest hour, right? They're going to just work from, in the NIV's numbers here, five to six, but probably the, the 11th hour of the workday. And then in reverse order, the owner tells his, his manager to come out and pay them. And the whole point of that is so that there's a, there's a delayed punchline to the story, right? 
because if he pays them in the order that they showed up, the ones who work the longest aren't going to see what happens. But he pays the guy that has only worked an hour the denarii. He gets the 200 bucks. So immediately as he goes through the line and all of these people are getting the same thing, the people on the end are thinking what? Well, I must get more, right? I'm going to get more. He's being super generous and I've done the most. It's all about what I've done, so I should get more. And I think ultimately in the story, there's only, there's only two groups of people. So there's the group of people who work the full day, who agreed to the, the fair price, and then there's everybody else. And it doesn't really matter how long they worked, they're all given generous amount of money, something that they didn't deserve. But the first group was given what was fair. See, that's, that's an important part of the story. They got what was right. They got what was just. They got the denarii or the 200 bucks for their day's work. I think, you know, when you read a parable, you always want to identify with somebody in the story. The characters represent us, and often there's people in the story that you don't want to be, and then there's other people that you do want to be. And I would suggest in this parable that we want to be over here with the people who worked the shorter days and were received a gracious gift. We don't want to be with the people who worked the full day and just got what was just, who just got what was right. The people over there who just got what was right, I think represent the unbeliever in the story. I think there's two reasons why I say that. First one here is this word that he uses. They start grumbling. So when they see that the others got more than them, uh, let's go down to verse, uh, verse 11. When they received it, they begin to grumble against the landowner. So that word there, to grumble or to murmur, if we know our Old Testament stories, what does that immediately remind us of? Who are the famous people who grumble and murmur? And, yeah. So it's, it's basically the same concept. It, Jesus is reminding them of their history, right? They were slaves in Egypt underneath an oppressive king who killed their children, who made them work building his buildings, made them make bricks, took away their straw, but said you still have to make as many bricks as before. And then God reached out with his mighty hand and he rescued them. He brought them out of slavery. He's leading them through the wilderness. He's going to make them into a great nation. But as soon as things don't go the way they think they should go, what do they start saying? We would rather be back in Egypt. We'd rather just be back in Egypt. We just don't, we're not really happy with what God's doing. And basically, if you boil it down, what they're saying, it's not fair. It's not just. We deserve better. We should be treated better. And you see the connection between them and the people in the story? They're essentially saying the same thing. It's not just. It's not fair. We worked all day long. We worked 12 hours. We worked during the hottest part of the day. We need something better. This isn't, this isn't right. The second reason I think that we're supposed to see these people as is evil is what, then what the, uh, the owner says to them. So he says in verse 13, but he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with, with, with my own money? Or are you envious 
because I am generous. Now, it's hard for us to see that there, but that, that idea there of being envious is the idea of having a, an evil eye or your eye being bad. It's the same phrase that Jesus used back in chapter 7 of, of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he said you can't love both God and money. You can't serve two masters. You either love the one and hate the other, or you serve the one and, and, and don't serve the other, right? You have to make a choice, just like that rich young ruler had to make the choice. But the, the I is the figure of speech for what we, we focus on, right? We, we still have that expression today. We'll, we'll talk about somebody's got their eye set on something, or they, they only have one thing that they're focused on. You know, so a man might have a boat, or he might have a house, or he might have a hobby. And we would say that's, that's, his, that's his life, right? That's his love. That's what his eye is focused on. And Jesus' point in chapter 7 is if your eye is bad, it's focused on the wrong thing, right? In that case, it's, it's, it's money. Here, he uses the same expression to say these individuals who are grumbling, their eye is bad, right? Because they're focused on the wrong thing. They're only focused on what they think is just, what they think they deserve. But I think that's the punchline of the story, right, of the parable is we don't want justice, do we? We don't want what's right. We don't want what's earned. If we, if we get justice, if we only get what's fair, right, that's the lake of fire for us, right? That's, that's going back to Daniel, that's shame and everlasting contempt. What we want is grace. <laughs> we want what Jesus deserved, right? We want something that like a child would take and never ask, how can I repay it? And yes, when we finally get to the kingdom, in some way we're going to share in Jesus' reign and there's going to be rewards. And I don't really know what that's going to look like. And if we imagined it tonight, we'd still probably be wrong. But whatever that looks like, it's going to be overshadowed by the fact that you and I are in eternal life. We're in an everlasting kingdom. And the only reason we got there is because, like the people in the story, we got more than we deserved, right? We got grace. So I think thinking through all of those little stories, we've got what he teaches about forgiveness. We've got his illustration of the little child. Then we've got the contrast with the, the rich man who shows up who doesn't truly want to follow him. We've got Peter then asking about rewards. It's a little bit of a misguided question, right, Peter? It's not really about what we're going to earn in the kingdom. It's about what's going to be given to us. And I think that's how they all flow together. Any, any questions there before we close? The story of the rich young ruler, there's some people that believe in work salvation use that as, as a justification for their view. You know, Maybe. You I mean, I've never heard anybody say that because, I mean, it would be really hard for them to do that because we all know from the story that we're not supposed to be the rich young ruler. Yeah. So it would be it would be surprising to me if if a thoughtful person used that as a argument to defend like a work salvation. Um, there's other places in the in the scriptures that talk about our works, right? Yeah. Um, so the one we started out with here in Matthew, remember going all the way back to beginning of last semester was when the Pharisees show up for the baptism and Jesus turns them away. 
or John does, John turns them away and it says, he says there that they're supposed to produce fruits that match or that are in keeping with repentance. So there is supposed to be evidence. There's supposed to be fruit in our life. But if we put all of scripture together and especially some of these stories that we talked about tonight, we realize that when we show up at the final judgment and when we have fruit or we have works, we have things that we've done, we've only done those by God's grace, right? We've only done those because He first loved us, right? We love Him because He first loved us. That's why an early Christian uh, described it as God crowning His graces in us. So, you know, one of the pictures we have of of rewards in the New Testament is crowns. I think maybe the crowns are really just all metaphors for eternal life, but the idea there is if we get a crown, if we get any kind of reward in the kingdom, it's just God rewarding us for something He did, ultimately. He's crowning His graces in us. So, yeah, you, for sure, you, could, you can pick apart verses uh, from the Bible and, and proof text them and say, hey, look, this verse is clearly talking about works and it's basing our salvation on works. But you're ignoring the whole context. We have to take everything that the Bible says together and we realize that those works were reproduced by the Spirit because we were regenerated. Any other questions? All right, that's, that's a great section. It's one of my favorites. All right, so thanks for letting me share that with you. Thanks for listening well, and Lord willing, we'll see you next week. chapter 26 uh, it gives you know sometimes different groups you know there's there's the, uh, the Pharisees the Sadducees uh, the scribes the elders I just was wanting to know because uh, I haven't I couldn't remember any reference that I've seen that link them politically or, or theologically with another group but the elders, it seemed like, would be closer to the Pharisees rather than to the than to the priest, because the priests were the were the Sadducees, right? Yeah, the Sadducees seem to they tend to be from the priestly family. But anyway, and yeah. so high high up socially, socioeconomically. But but the the thing is is that grouped them together, and it just seemed like. It just seemed like to me, if that's the case, that that, that, the, that the elders kind of tended to be away from the, the chief priest. That that was maybe an example of like, that Jesus was a greater enemy. So they,